Welcome to this last webinar of the UI MENA program, the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, Middle East and North Africa program. My name is Ruzba Parsi. I head the program and I will be moderating today's conversation, uh, which is about public health and the ramifications of the COVID pandemic uh, in the region. Um, this is obviously an issue that uh, affect everyone in the world, it's a pandemic, uh, but perhaps one of the reasons that, one of the regions that are interesting to look at in order to see the spread uh, in terms of the capacity and ability and perhaps also programs in, in the sense of where people want to go in the future, what lessons have so far been drawn from this pandemic is the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and in order to be able to disentangle uh, what we know and what we think we will be able to see in the near future. We have three distinguished panelists who are going to help us do this. Um, in order, as they will appear speaking, is Intisar Fakir, who is a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Institute's North Africa and Sahel program, who's joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome. Hanan uh, Abdul Rahim, who is an associate professor in public health, dean of the College of Health Science at Qatar University, joining us from Doha. Welcome. And last but not least, uh, Vera Amelie, who is a doctoral student at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford, who is joining us from Tehran. Welcome. Now, before I give the floor to Intisar to give us the broad overview so we can all have a compass, if you will, and some reference points for the map. Let me just give you some numbers to get an idea of the kind of expenditure when it comes to public health that is being spent in the region. These are the numbers that the WHO uh, has given to the IMF, uh, and they are for the year 2018. So these are very, very much pre-pandemic conditions, if you will. Uh, but nonetheless, I think the proportions are interesting rather than the exact numbers. So if we exclude the GCC countries, the high income countries of, of the region, the expenditure per capita in 2018 was $270. And at the same time, those high income countries in the Persian Gulf area, Qatar, Kuwait, UAE, were spending around $1,700 to $1,800 per capita. A country that has traditionally had a fairly good uh, uh, healthcare system Lebanon, if we go to the Mediterranean, used to, I'm stressing that because a lot has happened since, since 2018, spend roughly $700. And in comparison, Sweden spends $5,900 and the EU average is $3,500. Just to give everyone uh, an idea of, of what the range is when it comes to public health expenditure. With those words, Intisar, the floor is yours. Thank you, Rizbay. Um, So I thought what I would do today maybe is just kind of zoom out a little bit and set the stage for our conversation by talking about how, you know, what did the pandemic highlight and what is it, what is it revealing so far? And how is the experience uh, shaping some key social and political dynamics in the Middle East and North Africa region? I think much of what we are seeing um, of the effects of the pandemic and what is exposed really is universal. You know, we're talking about inequalities, injustices, growing fragility among the poor and middle class, uh, weak or inadequate government, and of course the lack, uh, the increasing lack of trust in governing systems. But I wanna focus on how this is unfolding um, in the Middle East and give specific examples from my area of focus, which is North Africa, 
But of course, I'll point out that, you know, these themes and issues are experienced really throughout the broader MENA region. I think it's important to remember that this is a region that has since 2011 really been experiencing varying degrees of transformation and instability from revolutions to sweeping protest movements to political transitions and of course, um, armed conflict. So just to start a little bit with the socioeconomic picture, um, the pandemic has worsened some of the challenges that the region had already been grappling with, including high unemployment rates, low economic growth rates, growing indebtedness, and limited investment in key sectors such as healthcare, like you just um, talked about, Ruzbe. So unemployment rates, just to give you a sense, um, this year in, Al in Algeria was 12%, in Morocco it was 10%, and in Tunisia it was 16.7%. These are World Bank estimates. And of course, these percentages tend to be higher among the youth. Um, unemployment rates in 2019, just for comparison, was not that much lower. In, in Algeria, it was 11.8%, Morocco 9 and um, Tunisia 15.3%. So all this is happening within a broader economic uh, context of, of economic retraction in the region. Um, again, using uh, World Bank estimates, Algeria, uh, Algerian economy retracted by 5.5%, in Tunisia, the economy shrank by about 8.8%, and in Morocco, um, the percentage was 7.1%. This has been especially devastating for people who, under normal circumstances, struggle to take out a living. Uh, people who are working on the margins in low-paying jobs in the informal sector. And with the pandemic-induced in um, confinements and curfews and border closures, there were, of course, layouts, uh, layoffs and unemployment freezes, especially in the uh, tourism sector, which in countries like Morocco and Tunisia contributes significantly to the state's income. Just to give an example, that percentage for Morocco is between 5 and 7% of GDP. Um, so some governments uh, like Morocco tried to kind of um, ease some of these economic tensions, uh, especially on informal sector workers and those in the tourism industry by providing cash payments and insurance, especially among those that were most affected by the shutdown. Um, and also, you know, in a way to, to ensure compliance with confinements, but these payments were A, not enough for many of these families, and B, they were quite temporary as the government ran out of funds to cover, um, to cover these long-term. Another element that came into focus uh, with the pandemic is that is uh, the state's track record of poor service provision. This is particularly relevant with the healthcare sector. Weakness of healthcare sector has been an ongoing issue for, for the region long before the pandemic. And one of the things that I often try to convey in these discussions is that there really is very little mystery to what young people in the Middle East want. They wanna be able to have access to good healthcare, education, and to jobs. These are almost always the key basic demands. So um, a couple of months ago, the World Bank put out a report that really detailed the systemic challenges of the healthcare system, including insufficient spending, we just heard the numbers from you, and investment, staff shortages, weak infrastructure, and difficulty of access, particularly in peripheral communities and, and rural areas. People would often have to drive or, or you know, ride long distances to access what is often very basic or or inadequate health service. Um, another area that's been impacted as well, and I'll touch on this very quickly, is education. With confinement, students and children really have lost access to, to education. 
In some cases, the state has tried to ensure quick and smooth um, digitization effort in administration and, and, and also in instruction. This was the case in Morocco and Tunisia. And these efforts really were quite remarkable because they came together almost in a period of two weeks. And there were a lot of you know, success stories early on, but there were some basic challenges that stood in the way of this being sort of a, a true success story, such as valuable access to the internet um, or access to computers and smart devices. And again, this is especially um, the case for people who are living on the margins. So just as there were stories of successful management in places like Morocco, for example, and even early on in Tunisia, there were uh, where the state was just to go back to, the, to the state's role, the, the state was quite vigilant in trying to curb the spread of uh, coronavirus, instituting mask mandates very early on and ensuring access to sufficient testing and medical protective equipment. There were also a lot of stories of states either being inefficient or just unable to manage the sheer scale of the virus spread. And this was particularly the case in Tunisia, uh, really a cautionary tale. Um, the spread of the Delta variant over the summer put such pressure on society and government that it added to the growing calls for radical change. The government had struggled to manage the pandemic. Um, again here, despite some of the early success that I mentioned, the virus was spreading at an alarming rate. The economy was struggling from the impact of the pandemic, certainly but also from years of um, debt trap that the country had been stuck in. All of this paved the way for Qais Saeed um, to grab power. In July, he suspended parliament, sacked the prime minister, and has since been ruling by decree. Um, this will be the case at least for the next year, as he's recently uh, clarified. Tunisia was the most ac acute example of this across the, the region. You know, an effective government making uh, processes and management for years and certainly during the pandemic have all contributed to this big and growing gap between citizens and their governments. And here it just kind of brings me to the, to the political uh, aspect of, of, of what the pandemic has revealed uh, in that the pandemic has really contributed to this vicious cycle. You know, governments claim that they need centralized processes to manage more effectively which only entrenches authoritarian tendencies and approaches. So governments got back on checks and balances in the name of, of efficiency. They stifle mobilization, criticism and opposition, and the gap essentially keeps growing. Um, you know, governments say that they need to prioritize urgent decisions, which gives them a pretext again here to stifle liberties, respect for human rights, of course, goes out the window. And, and all of this weakens consultative processes and elected institutions. This was the case for Morocco, although arguably Morocco had been going down this path for a few years now. Similarly, in Algeria, crackdown on opposition. Uh, Algeria, of course, had just um, been going through a sustained protest movement in 2019 that led to a political transition. So we've seen a lot of Herak figures thrown in jail, journalists and political figures as well. So overall, and I will just close on this note, it's a, it's a consistent picture. Populations are facing more economic and social pressure and governments are responding with a turn towards more authoritarian or centralized uh, processes. Now, I wanna close on a little bit more of a hopeful tone. Um, there are some bright spots, of course, the pandemic has forced governments to adapt in some positive ways. As I mentioned, digitization efforts in administration and service provision um, to improve some of their crisis uh, response mechanisms and another example, another positive example here is the way that some governments has been able to ensure 
really fairly effective uh, vaccination campaigns once they were able to secure the vaccines. This was the case in Morocco um, early on in Tunisia, a little bit more over um, the fall once Tunisia again was able to get large shipments of, of uh, vaccine. And another notable point here is really the way civil society stepped up early on um, to provide support where the state support where the state could not. Um, this was the case in Algeria where civil society groups mo mobilized early on to provide medical equipment and to raise awareness. So it's not all bad news. There's certainly um, some positive uh, things that came out of uh, this experience as well. Thank you. I mean, uh, definitely the things you touched upon uh, at the very end are things we need to come back to. That is civil society, even though the state is entrenched, as you say, and has clear authoritarian tendencies from before. The question is how this then matched what else existed in society when responding to everything. Um, I also want to uh, remind the audience that you can ask questions. You can do that through Facebook if you're, uh, you're looking at the streaming from there, or you can do it through the Q&A function here at, in Zoom. Very good. Thank you very much, Intisar. So, Hanan, what is your view on the region? Sure. Uh, well, thanks very much. And I'm, I'm very grateful to be part of this uh, discussion. I think you'll find that the points that I'm about to raise are, are quite similar to what Intisar talked about. I'm, I'm a bit more focused on the Eastern Mediterranean region. So that does include some countries in North Africa, but then of course, obviously uh, many others. And there are countries in North Africa that are not part of, of the Eastern Mediterranean region. Nevertheless, the points are, are, uh, are quite similar. Um, let me say that um, um, in order for us to, to fully appreciate what COVID-19 has done um, in our region, I think we have to think about some of the most salient features of, of our region, and those have had impact on the risk of infection, on the risk of a, a, an adverse outcome, or, or even region mortality once someone is infected, and the ability of countries to, to manage the epidemic. And, and in our region, um, one of those um, is the, the epidemiological picture, right? So the burden of disease in, in, in our region, um, which tends to have a dual burden of disease. So there's no doubt that non-communicable diseases in our region are a very significant uh, a burden on uh, morbidity and on mortality. So we have, you know, some really frightening statistics. One in three deaths in our region are cardiovascular disease deaths. And the um, the, the region's contribution to disability-adjusted life years owing to diabetes are the highest in the world. So obviously NCDs are, are a problem. And at the same time, because of this inequities uh, and this sort of range of income countries and, and, and range of, of development levels in the region, we also have countries that are grappling with food insecurity and undernutrition and so on. Well, what does that mean for COVID-19? Um, it means a couple of things. One, it means that for you know, at least the past decade, the health systems have been focused on non-communicable diseases, on curative care mainly. So there has not been this preparation, this readiness for uh, 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 an, an, an epidemic, much less a pandemic, an epidemic, you know, on a, on a global scale. So um, that that's one of the implications. And, and the other is that we know from, from different 
studies that, you know, conditions like diabetes and cardiovascular disease will raise the risk of, of uh, uh, serious morbidity and of mortality from COVID-19. So the groundwork for, you know, for uh, uh, the impact of, of COVID-19 because of NCDs is there. Um, the other, um, uh, I think, salient feature, again, with implications for COVID-19 is, is something that Nsad touched on, which is uh, the conflict. I mean, more than half the countries in our region are involved in, you know, either direct conflict or impact of conflict, like uh, uh, like sanctions or, you know, or occupation and, and so on. And that's had... Um, you know, a, a devastating effect, of course, in terms of refugees and internally displaced persons. So by nature of the risk factors that they live in, the, the crowded conditions, the lack of access to basic services, uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the undernutrition, uh, they're at higher risk for, for a COVID-19 infection. And then being a refugee or an internally displaced person, would it itself be a risk factor for poor prognosis? So that's not a trivial part of, of, of the population. I think that's going to be a very important consideration, um, you know, going forward. And part of the problem, of course, is that we don't even have the full data. We don't even have the full picture on the impact there because not all of the refugees are living in refugee camps. Many of them are, you know, living in, in, um, in, in uh, urban uh, uh, developments. So, so, the, the presence of, of you know, refugees, um, very important, but also the impact on the health system that, that the conflict has had. So, I mean, you know, it ranges from places like Syria, where there is literal destruction of, of hospitals and healthcare uh, um, uh, infrastructure and, and the uh, exodus of, of healthcare workers to other settings that are sort of more long-term in the de-development of, of their health system because of years of, of political conflict and, and so on. So that also does not bode well for, for um, managing um, COVID-19. Um, my third point is on uh, mental health effects. I think that's one of the issues that going forward are going to be very important for us to deal with. Um, even before COVID-19, the burden of, of mental disorders in the region was higher than the global average, uh, especially when you look at conditions like depressive disorders or anxiety disorders. And then we know, of course, from uh, uh, actual data that um, the uh, burden on, on mental health is higher in countries uh, uh, in conflict. So you add those two together and then you add the third element, which is the mental health effects of the containment measures of, of COVID-19. And I think you have a recipe for sort of a long-term substantial burden of mental uh, ill health that we're going to have to deal with. And unfortunately in our region, we have not had a good track record of dealing with, uh, uh, with mental health in terms of resources and capacity and, and response to stigma and so forth. So this is an area that in building back, we are definitely going to have to pay a lot of attention to. Um, a fourth point is, again, something that was initially problematic in the region, but that is now going to be even more important looking ahead and that's data and surveillance systems, right? So, um, so our region has had problems with completeness of data with you know, even vital registration data like causes of death or coverage of death statistics. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and the um, 
completeness of cause of death, for example, and this is just one example, is, is you know, lower than the global average. The data on other types of conditions on various social determinants of health, um, finding disaggregated data is very, very difficult. They're not systematic. A lot of them are from, you know, subnational small samples. So um, going forward, these systems will have to be uh, strengthened if we want them to serve as a basis for a successful response to a crisis of this, of this nature or, or any other uh, type of crisis. Um, and finally, I'd say the issue of, of public trust, and that's something that Intisad also touched on. So building back is going to require uh, public cooperation and public trust. And, you know, this is not an area that many countries in the region uh, uh, have been necessarily doing well on even before COVID-19. And then we've seen some surveys uh, coming out of the Arab barometer and other types of surveys that indicate that in some countries, people are unhappy either with the uh, health system response, the economic response, or both. Um, and, and again, going forward and thinking about what we will need to do to manage uh, uh, crises like this one, you can't do it without public trust and without people uh, being willing to go along with some very, um, uh, with sometimes, you know, difficult measures that that, that influence their, their daily lives. So, you know, we cannot deny that the pandemic has been useful in, you know, in shining a light on inequities. It's not that they didn't exist before COVID-19, they did, but COVID-19 made them worse and COVID-19 made them more visible. So, you know, that might actually have been one of the few uh, useful outcomes of, of, of COVID-19 is, is uncovering uh, those um, health inequities um, and also showing people and showing policymakers how important it is to invest in public health systems, not just in curative care, but in public health systems, in the public health workforce, in public health surveillance systems, in public health laboratories, and, and various other uh, uh, capacities. So uh, I think those are two lessons that hopefully we do not neglect as we, uh, as we move forward. And I'll stop here and then we can talk about some other issues in detail. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, there is there is a lot there to to kind of unravel, both in terms of, as you said, the already structural uh, kind of underlying foundations of, of what works and what doesn't work, uh, or things where where the region is is in a worse shape than the global average, but where this comes and exacerbates things. And of course, when you say surveillance, there is also the other aspect of surveillance that is that the, being effective in contact tracing. Using apps, for instance, is useful, but in a in a in a region known more for its authoritarianism than any other kind of political theory, uh, that of course also has its its own pitfalls, and and how to deal with that as we move forward. But we will definitely come back to those issues. Vera, thank you very much for having me. I really um, learned a lot from. Um, other countries in the region by listening and to you. And I am going to uh, take a slightly different approach in sort of speaking about the COVID-19 pandemic um, in a global context, and then sort of focus on how that influenced, um, well, Iran in particular, but also 
other countries in the world and maybe not just the region even. Um, so let me start by um, reviewing uh, the certain peculiarities of COVID-19 that um, largely shaped um, how we all experienced the pandemic. Um, as we all know, viruses accentuate inequalities uh, both within societies but also globally. And so um, it, one of the most important aspects of COVID-19 though was that at least in the first wave, rich countries were more affected by the virus. And um, this had two major impacts. Um, the first was that the scale and nature of the policy response that we saw was largely designed for advanced economies. So um, as, as the pandemic had started in China, lockdowns were the model that were then followed globally, but lockdowns um, require extensive regulatory and controlling power of the population, which as we discussed is um, not always easy to um, implement in certain settings, especially when there is a lack of trust or there are other sensitivities in the region or the country. Um, and most importantly, um, lockdowns require the ability to provide social support protections when stopping livelihoods. And for countries that have informal, more informal economies, this was largely impossible. And for the case of Iran, um, as it was experiencing sanctions and its it was already shrinking for the past um, year and a half or two years, and it was almost just starting to get back into a place where the economy was having an upward trend, that's when the pandemic arrived. And so um, this largely made, um, you know, having extensive lockdowns in Iran impossible. Um, and it added, um, and this was added to the fact that um, trade of every item that we needed for the coronavirus pandemic was, um, made impossible by sanctions and by um, restrictions that the Office of um, Financial Assets, uh, the OFAC of the U.S., um, implemented very strongly, despite sort of saying that um, medical items are not sanctioned. Um, so this really influenced the way that the pandemic sort of arrived in Iran, and it, and it was this inequality that was at the level of international politics, but was accentuated um, when it was experienced in a lot of the sanctioned countries, not just Iran. And in fact, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran, um, in the way that it interacted with the pandemic, it indirectly sort of put more pressure on Iran, and it was sort of a gain for the Donald Trump administration, uh, again, despite saying that the goal of the uh, of the campaign is not to, you know, block any medical trade or humanitarian trade, but this was really secretly or kind of actually shamelessly um, used as a way to put more pressure on ordinary citizens and a lot of more lives were lost because of this. Uh, but the second um, sort of um, aspect that was related to the fact that rich countries were affected more with coronavirus was the speed and urgency that we saw in terms of the global response to coronavirus. And, and this was particularly the case in terms of vaccine development. Um, so we saw governments putting a lot of money for development of vaccines and then um, accelerating authorization of vaccines for emergency use. 
Um, but this was um, not the case, um, and this determination was not seen in response to other epidemics that we had um, seen before in other parts of the world, such as Zika, H1N1, Ebola, for example, took eight years to develop a vaccine, um, and, and also HIV, despite it starting or emerging in the U.S. as a high-income country, because the communities that were affected in San Francisco were largely marginalized, um, the impact that we saw was that it took, you know, six years for the first antiviral um, drug to be developed, and this was driven through immense community-driven activism. Um, so um, the vaccine production and distribution were stark signs of inequality, though, even though there was this drive for getting the vaccine. But then afterwards, um, we saw that many countries, especially in the global south, couldn't access vaccines or had to pay larger amounts of money despite having a mechanism like COVAX that was um, support, supposed to sort of guarantee access to vaccines. Um, and I think it's important to emphasize, for example, I, I, I emphasize this global context because I think if we want to discuss sort of moving forward for this from this pandemic, we need to sort of think of ways that regionally we can cooperate more. Um, and I think, for example, when we look at the Pfizer or rather BioNTech vaccine that was developed, um, well, the technology was developed by BioNTech, um, it wasn't just the business that was obviously benefiting from this. It was around, uh, I think BioNTech um, tax uh, was around 800 million to 1 billion euro for one year that was collected in the city of Mainz in Germany, uh, only one of the centers of production. And so it wasn't just the, the businesses in the global north, but the communities in the global north that were having a windfall while there is such scarcity in developing countries and, and and a lot of the countries in our region as well. Um, and notably, I think it's also important to think about the fact that the technology that produced the mRNA vaccine was really produced through 90% uh, of it was produced through publicly funded knowledge production. So BioNTech really um, put the last brick in the wall, if you may. And um, But the mRNA technology itself was developed in labs in Hungary, London, Pennsylvania. And I think the main person um, who is from Hungary is not even like a household name, despite the fact that he was actually the, the founder of the technology, really. Um, and it's important public funds going towards uh, private companies. And the way that most of the Western world has been doing this is that a lot of funds are being given to pharmaceutical companies and, 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 it's, uh, and the whole production and then the distribution is handed over to the private company. So there isn't even a regulatory or sort of like a condition condition put on these private companies to then, you know, be responsible in terms of their commitments to COVAX or to sort of distribute um, the vaccines better. And so all of this ended up in, you know, the hoarding of the vaccines that we saw, for example, four times the population needs in, Can in, in the US and 11 times in Canada, two or three times in the UK. And overall, I think um, just within a few weeks after the emergency emergency authorization of the vaccines happened, 85% of the production capacity for the next year was put through advanced orders for uh, the global north countries, which only hold 16% of the population of the world. Um, so if you imagine for a, a country like Iran then that really put the 
orders for vaccines in um, from very early on through COVAX. And, you know, there were sanctions in place and um, there were really every impediment that was possible to be put in the way of making sure that Iran would not secure vaccines um, were sort of being triggered. And um, the, the international politics was also in place in a way that um, countries that obviously are friends of the U.S. were much more easily able to purchase vaccines and and sort of using this as a as another um, diplomatic soft power, if you will. Um, however, when you look at countries like China or Russia that also develop their vaccines, for them, if if they wanted to sort of share their vaccine, it was there was a large outrage in the beginning, and um, and even the WHO, the mechanism. It, it isn't necessarily clear whether this is intentional, but it would take much uh, less of a time for a country like the US or the European countries to get approvals of their vaccines. Whereas for China, it took much longer. Russia, I think, still doesn't have the WHO approval, or maybe it does now. Um, and, and for example, for a country like Iran, that it did really try to uh, use all of the resources that it has to develop a vaccine, it largely became impossible to um, get those vaccines approved by the WHO, despite the fact that it could have helped many countries in in the sub-Saharan African region um, to gain access to vaccines. Um, so I think that um, when we think about these problems that are created by the inequalities in the structures, in the global structures, um, we also need to remember that COVID-19 was really a small and easy problem to solve comparing to the challenges that we will face um, with, um, you know, climate change um, soon coming um, and, and having more and creating more uh, health threats. Um, so I think that what we need in the region beyond uh, what we all need internally in our countries and how our health systems need to, you know, change priorities maybe. And, you know, I, I'm not getting into the internal uh, problems here in Iran now, uh, but I think we, we do need to sort of uh, change the public debate and, and, um, and have more arguments that are based on, um, health and human security and new modes of cooperation um, to then be able to sort of use the capacities that exist in different countries. Iran, for example, now has um, more capacities for um, vaccine production, for pharmaceutical production out of the countries in the region. But because of sanctions, even that capacity is not, um, is not possible to be you know, utilized and sort of flourish for, for the region. Even in, in African states, we see now that they are sort of moving away from having to wait for aid and charity, and they are even preparing to get uh, venture capital um, approaches to sort of develop internal capacities for production. And I think when we have this in, in certain you know, pockets of our countries and within our region, we need to really um, find new ways and, and discuss how we can utilize these resources better. I think I'm going to end there and let discussion start. Thank you. I mean, you're pointing to some uh, uh, important things. I mean, of course, burden sharing and the division of labor, depending on where each country has its strengths structurally in terms of its capacity, but also, of course, the global issue of, of uh, who is actually paying for the development of these technologies and these vaccines, and, and are they then distributed in a way that, that makes sense? 
not necessarily make sense business-wise, but make sense medically. Uh, because in the end, if not everyone is vaccinated or at least enough people are vaccinated, it doesn't really matter because these things are not going to respect borders. So having, you know, having g- giving us in the global north where I live, for instance, five shots in the next years is, is perhaps good for us and reassuring and it creates public trust between me as a citizen and my government. But it won't probably medically help in the long run because Sweden is not an island. Um, even if it was an island, people want to leave and come to this island, and therefore we are exposed to everyone else who might not have been vaccinated at all. Uh, so these things are, are are not going to be uh, compartmentalized in that way. But so let, let's um, let's now try and kind of bring all of these things that you have been uh, very pedagogically uh, uh, illuminating for us together. I mean. On the one hand, what we are discussing and what you've mentioned is the kind of infrastructural built-in, as it were, inequalities that already exist, which have then been exacerbated. On the other hand, because they have exacerbated those inequalities, these governments, but also their, their societies, obviously, are put under tremendous pressure through this pandemic. And so this then, of course, begs the question, um, are they adapting in similar ways, or are they all trying very different things? Are they looking at each other when they're trying to figure out how to grapple with this? That, of course, is about the immediate, the immediate crisis, as it were. But then, of course, the next uh, question that follows on that is, once they catch up a bit uh, and catch their breath, they get a certain level of vaccination and so on, what happens in the future? As in, are they drawing any relevant lessons from this? Uh, Can we see that already now? Uh, Are those lessons being drawn and channeled through regional arrangements primarily? Or is it the WHO and other global institutions that are taking the lead uh, on trying to create more, shall we say, region-wide solutions or approaches for the next pandemic, or rather for the continuation of this one? since it is by no means over. Um, who would like to pick on any of these threads first? In this can, oh, sure. I can say maybe just kind of um, very briefly, you know, intro, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the socioeconomic um, element here. I think it's been very clear, and of course the pandemic really drove this home, that these countries need to develop, to develop much more um, inclusive economies. And the problem is, the, the problem, the way that I see it is that, you know, you can make an argument that this has been pretty clear for many years now, right? We're coming off of 2011. It's very clear that um, these countries need to spend a lot more on infrastructure. They need to spend a lot more on public health, education, you know, they need to invest more in um, uh, social development programs. So in what I see is the best case scenario. There are, there is maybe the awareness that that has to happen, but you either have a lack of political will, a lack of resources, or some combination thereof that at least to me, indicates that this is not what's what's likely to happen. 
you know, there is maybe there is the lesson, we see it, we, we know that it needs to uh, change, but I, I'm not sure that that, I, I, it's not clear to me that there is any sign that that's going to change. In terms of regional cooperation, I look, and this is, you know, this is just an example for North Africa and the Maghreb. There's even, again, prior to the pandemic, there are so many good arguments why regional cooperation is important. This is one of the regions that's less, um, that's the least integrated. But again, there's, there's no impetus for these countries to work together. If anything, they're kind of moving further apart from each other, as we see right now um, in the tension between Morocco and Algeria. So again, I feel like the lessons are there. They're very clear. You could even argue that they're very well understood by these regimes, but there's no real action that's following or that's likely to follow on that. But in your, okay, let me just follow up that very quickly. Is this, as you said, I mean, the political, lack of political will to some degree, perhaps lack of a capacity as well. Uh, but is there an impetus or um, a pressure from below or from within the healthcare communities to kind of point to the politicians, you know, point out to them that here are, you know, reasonable and, and very obvious things that need to be done across borders? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's definitely pressure. There's a lot of voices that are talking about this. Um, look, for example, I, you know, I just wrote a piece about Morocco's uh, budget for this year. Um, the country has not really effectively invested in uh, social development for probably the past 10 years. And now they're really in a place where they absolutely have to because of all of the social pressure. And they talk a good deal about it. And it's maybe that there is the intention and the will to do that, but there is no re resources to do that. Um, the country is borrowing more to make up its budget deficit. And when you look at some of the areas that have where spending has increased, it's you know the defense budget. Um, there is there is there, it's the same story that continues to be to sort of um, play out. I understand. Thank you. Vera, did you want to come in? I'm going to wait and make a point okay. later. Okay. Hanan? Um, yeah, just a couple of things on that. One, I think, is, is um, I think we need to be mindful of how we think about and talk about resources. I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, if you have the resources, you can have a good response. If you don't, you won't. But I think the, um, the, the pandemic has shown us that there are countries that, you know, that were considered to be well resourced and you know they did not do well in their in their response. So, you know, resources are certainly useful. I mean, I I, I can tell from from being in Qatar and from thinking about the national response here, but it's not the only reason that the response to COVID-19 was was a good one. Resources definitely alone on their own are not enough. They're useful, but um, it, it's very important to think also about time scale. So the, the, the types of, of things you need 
you know, to be in place for a, a good response to, you know, this pandemic or to other future crises are not things that are going to be created overnight. So if you're talking about, you know, and, and I think very specifically about the healthcare system, if you're talking about, uh, you know, building good data systems, good, you know, epidemiological surveillance systems, those are not things that are going to happen overnight. If you think about investing in human resources um, for healthcare, especially now when you know people are either burned out and leaving the, the, the healthcare workforce, you know some of them were killed by this epidemic or by conflict, uh, you know, in, in countries. So you know, if you think about building the human resources, if you think about building uh, data systems. These are long-term plans. And so we can't be, you know, interested and excited about them today and then forget about them in a few months when, you know, if, if the pandemic calms down and, and, and we go into sort of a quieter phase of it. That's my biggest fear. I think we need to make sure that there is, um, you know, long-term commitment to, to rebuilding uh, the public health system and to strengthening it because it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be done with a quick fix. Well, that's, a, that's, I think, I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, that's, you know, public health is, is not a uh, uh, top item on, on agendas. Usually it is hard security, for instance, rather than thinking holistically about how societies develop. But of course, one difference between countries like in, in the Gulf and, and countries like Lebanon, would just make a very just a juxtaposition is that countries like Qatar and United Arab Emirates have the 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 cash they have the capital to attract competence uh, that they can use until they have built their own capacity. At least that's an option they can try. I would imagine. While a country like Lebanon cannot. Right, um, but so again, I mean, but but again, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But again, yeah. the point is. Yes, they have the resources to do that until and while national capacities are being built. But it's also something that has to be planned. You can't really mm. import people overnight and expect the system to work. It's much more complicated than that to get mm. all elements of a public health system working. So it might have been done with resources and bringing in resources from abroad. But again, there's an element of planning to it over time that when the time came and when it was needed, the system was ready. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been. Thank you. Vera. Thank you. So um, just to, yes, I very much agree with Dr. Rahim's points about resources and sort of the time scale that you need to um, use the the resources that you have to build a, a functioning system. Uh, and just because I didn't really talk about the Iranian health system structure, uh, I just want to point out to the importance of human resources and perhaps what um, really distinguishes Iran from maybe um, some of the other countries in the region, even the countries to the south of the Persian Gulf, is that um, the, there has been, you know, massive investment in developing human resources. And this is, you know, indicated in the Human Development Index of Iran as well. And even when we think about spending, it's also, again, important to think about purchasing power and the services and, again, human resources that, that you can access with the amount of spending that you do. So I'm not sure if, if the spending is um, purchasing a, power adjusted, but I think it's important 
important to sort of think of health systems to that of uh, in terms of how they are built over time and the efficiencies um, that are created within it. Like Iran, for example, has a very um, decentralized system. So it operates like the, the Ministry of Health and Medical Education are um, joined together. And that is in order to sort of make sure that and the university hospitals that are in each province are catering to the public health needs uh, when they are training the medical workforce. And this has been, you know, um, quite successful in sort of getting close to universal health coverage. But then again, when you, when you have, you know, sanctions um, being uh, hitting Iran uh, twice really severely and, and the um, currency falling to you know, half or even more than half of its value, and driving inflation. You know, the the again, the purchasing power of of healthcare services has also been reduced. But I think what I want to point out in terms of your earlier question is that what is important is that, for example, what you see in Iran, where uh, maybe you also perhaps see in Cuba. Although I'm not saying that the the Iranian and the Cuban system are are similar in any way, but there is this uh, realization from the beginning that you know we cannot rely on on foreign assistance in any way, whether through capital me means or th through like you know bringing in human resources and experts from abroad. And this has sort of created this drive for making sure that you are self reliant. And this was not just you know um, a response that was created within the past decade and the experience of the most severe sanctions. But this was, you know, created very early on from when Iran experienced the eight-year war with Iraq and sort of felt very isolated and was very isolated. But even within that eight years was is when it was able to sort of, despite having declining GDP, build a system that um, really improved um, all human development outcomes and also like maternal and child mortality and um, and, and factors that sort of were really um, were required a lot of determination and political will. And I think that is there now as well, because again, there has been a realization that, okay, these threats are not just going to happen once and we need to have the capacities to respond more efficiently in the future. But I do think that it is important to sort of have more regional understanding of of each country's situation and also of the global structures, because a lot of the ways that health systems are drained is through how pharmaceutical companies, not just for vaccines, but other um, medications sort of like drain the health systems of countries. So I think because of that, it's also important to sort of like change the argument and look at our health systems within the global context and not just look at it, you know, internally. Very good. I mean, Yes. So, so what we're we're talking about that when we, capital in itself is not enough, you need to build infrastructure that takes time, which means that you have to have some kind of strategy. You have to have some ambition uh, and a way of executing that. Um, but that kind of brings us back to where we started, in a sense, because several of you have already pointed out, of course, that it's about public trust. It's also about being able to exercise authority. You know, just having the money, for instance, would not make you uh, able to get people to, for instance, come and test or or to accept the vaccine. You also need to, you know, uh, in, in a sense, to entice them, if you will, and they need to trust you one way or another uh, for that to happen. But um, Intasar and, and, and Hanan, you were both pointing to this earlier. 
What about then the NGOs and civil society? I mean, in varying degrees, they are allowed in different countries in in the Middle East. So there's that to begin with. But then there's also the question of, uh, are there different traditions in terms of having civil society organizations dealing with public health? And were they then then able to step up? Were they allowed to step up? Uh, And could they cover things that the state was not able to? Intisar, would you like to start? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for for uh, I'll I'll limit my remarks here to North Africa. I think the um, the way that civil society was able to uh, step in, and I I'm not just talking about civil society here that works on um, on issues of public health, is that there really were sort of early efforts to kind of try it and, and say, where can we step in? How can we support? Uh, what role can we can we play? Um, but again, this is this is this is never going to uh, it's never going to make up fully or match state capacity. So these were, you know, they were very encouraging examples. They were good examples, but they were limited because civil society, I think, um, in, in a lot of places does not have access to a lot of resources. And again, here I'm talking about North, um, North Africa specifically. So, but, but again, I think, I mean, if we talk, I'm trying to figure out how to make the point that, you know, civil society, uh, at least in places like Morocco, we, we have kind of seen sort of the, this kind of change from, from, you know, wanting to focus a lot more on political issues to kind of transitioning a little bit more to work on these social issues to do a little bit more service provision and so on and so forth. But that kind of that kind of creates a little bit of a gap. So you have civil society all kind of migrating to try to support in this um, service provision part. And then you you sort of have a little bit of, of kind of an even um, uh, an even makeup of civil society. So you know that that all all that meandering is to say that you know there is there 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 was uh, there were good stories that came out of public that that came out of civil society. They're not you know again this isn't going to trans to completely transform a certain country's uh, uh, response to such crisis, but it does sort of you know it does kind of provide a little bit of a sense that there is more um, that there is more dynamism that's happening on the civil society. Uh, aspect. And even on the side, sorry, just to kind of add a little bit, even on the side of the governments, one of the things that, as I mentioned in my remarks, that was really interesting is that, well, for example, in North Africa, very early on in the pandemic, there was talk about ventilators and how can you sort of respond to some of these shortages of ventilators. And we really Kind of saw a little bit more of a sense of self-reliance on some of these on this on the side of some of these countries, which I think was you know it was kind of an an early indication that um, when there is when when there is the need and when there is the desire, these governments can at least this is something that I came up came out w- uh, from a lot of conversations in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, I, I came out of the sense that people sort of were a little bit struck by how governments, when there is a desire to address something and when there is clearly a need that these governments were able to step up. 
And I remember sort of feeling, you know, get, getting the feeling that people were sort of struck. They were thinking, okay, well, if you can marshal the resources and the will on these issues, why haven't you done that to address some of these longer standing issues? And uh, yeah, I mean, that brings me back to the point, Hanan, that you were making. I, nobody ever said that this was purely an issue of, of resources. Of course, you need sound policies, you need state, state capacity, you need, uh, you need a history of good governance. And for a lot of these countries, there really isn't. I mean, Algeria is, or at least until very recently, it used to be a, a country of resources. And its, and it's uh, healthcare system is not that different from Morocco, who doesn't have a lot of income, and, for, and from Algeria, uh, sorry, and from Tunisia. I think arguably the Tunisian healthcare system was in a better uh, position to deal with these issues than before. But at least for a lot of these countries that are not oil producing countries, the question of resources is a real one. And you know, where do you get it? And on and, and what you do get, how do you use it, of course? Well, let me follow up on that. I mean, um, so yes, obviously civil society kind of uh, uh, going into the breach is a stopgap measure. It, it cannot make up for what a whole state is supposed to do. And as you said, so they then, people then see that the state can step up uh, when, when it's really kind of push comes to shove and it, it's, it has it back against the wall. But if we then kind of extrapolate from that towards the future, um, do you think there is a different kind of expectation that is being expressed vis-a-vis -vis the state, perhaps on public health right now, but in general? And is the state acknowledging this? Is it kind of thinking about how to address that? Yeah, I mean, these. this is the, the trick with public sentiment. It changes very quickly, right? So you've got a government when, when they do show uh, an initial kind of uh, responsiveness and that they actually are taking the crisis seriously. Of course, people say, okay, well, this is good. Maybe we do feel good about what, go what our government uh, is doing. And you saw this in some of the uh, polling that uh, the Arab Barometer Survey did early on right after. Um, there was also some national polling that was done in Morocco, um, particularly in Morocco, where I think citizens felt like, okay, good, this, this response is good. And this sets, maybe this sets, um, this sort of sets up a different kind of, uh, a different set of expectations. But then as the crisis dragged on and there were, of course, inevitably, there were, um, you know, management problems and, and there were a lot of inadequacies that were happening, then, then distrust sort of sets in. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the, just to kind of give an example of that is the question of vaccines. You know, Morocco was able to procure AstraZeneca, Sinopharm, and then later on um, some of the Russian uh, vaccines as well. But people didn't really, you know, there was the, there was the idea that you know the AstraZeneca was a lot more effective than the other vaccines, and then you know people were there was even you even heard talk about whether the government was actually watering down some of the doses. That's of course in addition to all of the other um, you know uh, anti-vaccine and so on conversations that were happening as well. So you know. Public trust is something that has to be maintained through a long track record of good governance. You can't show up one day and be like, here, you know, I'm going to do, do these two things and have everyone kind of say, okay, well, this gives us a little bit of hope. And then you kind of abandon that. And then, of course, public, public opinion is going to change, um, is going to shift, of course, after that. Okay, but so but that the means, other thing, yeah. uh, sorry, but the other thing that I would say is that, you know, when... When you talk, 
of course, I mean, this is something that I, 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 I've sort of been saying for a while and it comes, you know, it comes sort of from my experience in the region and, and my understanding of the region. There is, there really is a strong sense within the younger population of the region that in general, you know, regardless of the pandemic, that they, they deserve better for themselves. They want better. They want governments that are more accountable, that are able to provide them with these very basics. So there is already, you know, um, that, and I would maybe argue that that's a little bit different from you know, my parents' generation, where, where the sense of expectation was a little bit uh, different. So to your point, I think this sort of idea of what constitutes a relationship between the state and citizens is, is, is a dynamic one and it's really changing and experiences like the pandemic certainly contributes to that, but it's a much more longer process. Thank you for that. But do I understand you correctly in that the dynamism in a sense is much more on the side of the public while the state is being somewhat depressingly predictable in its way of, of dealing with these things, that it will probably move on and find something else it feels it immediately needs to deal with and not necessarily continue to concentrate on the needs of public health. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's, that's accurate because these are, um, these are highly reactive regimes. You know, it's not, these are not regimes that tend to kind of uh, think long-term and it's, it's more about reacting to what's going on sort of with the public every day. I, I would make the argument for um, that that's the case, at least for North Africa, certainly. Thank you. Hanan, if I were to pose the same questions to you. Yeah, sure. So let me start with, with the question about civil society. And, you know, here's where it's, it's important to remind everyone that, you know, when, when you say the Middle East or the Arab region or MENA, you know, you're not really talking about just one block. It's very different. And so whereas civil society in, in, for example, in Palestine or in Jordan or in, in, you know, some North African countries where civil society organizations there are very important and, and, and pick up, uh, you know, some of, of what is, is not picked up by uh, the government in terms of services and so on. Obviously, that's not really the case in, in the GCC. That's not um, uh, a very dominant force here. The government does tend to take care of, of, of all needs, you know, whether it's the economic impact of mitigation measures or if it's, you know, handling um, the, the, um, the uh, pandemic or, uh, you know, um, in terms of, of, of health care and so on. But a couple of things here. Um, civil society doesn't necessarily translate into more trusted than the government. So if, you know, there is actually, if you think about different contexts outside of, of the GCC, um, there is actually sometimes some distrust in, in, in NGOs and in, in civil society organizations, either because of their affiliation with certain international aid agencies, or maybe because of, you know, of, of the, you know, sectarian influences and their affiliation with certain parties. So, you know, it's not the case that civil society, you know, always has the trust of the people and the government does not. It's, I think it's much much more nuanced than that. Uh, but, you know, that said, I think public, uh, I think trust in government is extremely important. Very interesting, you know, at the beginning of the of the pandemic, there was this um, online survey that was done by a consortium of, of, of universities, and it was asking about, um, you know, trust in government. And, and um, for example, in Qatar, 
where I lived, the trust in government was very, very high. And that was very helpful in my interpretation in getting people, you know, in the earlier phases of, of the epidemic to, to comply with measures that were, uh, uh, you know, somewhat strict and, and, and that limited people's daily lives. So there is no question that, that trust in government is important. And I, I really take your point and decide. I remember one time in a talk, I said that, you know, this, this trust, this public trust and the trust in the government, it's like credit in the bank. You, you know, you spend a lot of times building it so that you can draw on it when you need to. And a lot of countries did not have credit in the bank. So, you know, so when they were asking, when they were making some very difficult asks of people in terms of, of, of public health measures, um, you know, th th that trust and the credit simply uh, uh, was not there. So, um, so I think those were the points I wanted to make about, about your questions. Vera, um, in, in what would be your take on this issue? Because, I mean, this is obviously something that is also constantly debated in Iran, which is also a complex country with, you know, both government-affiliated NGOs and not government-affiliated NGOs and, and so on. So I would say that the Iranian society in general, in response to every crisis, uh, has a tendency to really mobilize. So, you know, we've had earthquakes, we've had floods, and the civil society really steps in and actually sort of fills that gap that, um, that you know, there is the lack of trust with the government for a certain social or political class, and the civil society really helps there. They sort of pool a lot of funds. They're ma they manage to, like celebrities even, they manage to, um, you know, um, just in a matter of few days, collect a lot of funds, and, um, and then later they have to sort of be responsible, actually, Previously, because um, this had happened numerous times, sort of this um, celebrities um, gaining a lot of funds had come into question because after a few years that, you know, certain author or certain um, I don't know, certain like footballer had uh, collected a lot of funds and was supposed to then later, you know, deliver programs and resources for um, earthquake affected areas. Um, they weren't happening in the way that people had thought it would. And so this created a lot of tension. So the government had to sort of step in and, and, and regulate how much people are allowed to sort of just, you know, put in a bank number and, um, and and this gets spread in social media and then collect a lot of funds. But for COVID-19, it was slightly different because we just needed, uh, I mean, we were in a very, very difficult situation in, in the very beginning of the pandemic. So the civil society mobilization really helped in the sense of being able to for example, use any kind of capital, social capital that they may have inside the country or financial capitals that they have within the private sector, for example, to sort of um, um, ramp up the production or sort of like pooling uh, ventilators in the beginning of the pandemic, but also to have to sort of connect with their international contacts and sort of try to, you know, get funds internationally in a way that can, you know, uh, bypass sanctions, basically. Um, but then again, there is another class of, you know, civil society, if you may, in Iran, that is also very much supported by the government. Like we, Iran has a very, very large volunteer task force, the, the besieged volunteer task force, that largely delivers social services as opposed to the political um, 
um, reputation that they have sometimes, and, and this doesn't get highlighted, but they really de deliver a lot of social services. So within the more religious classes, um, there was a lot of volunteerism. And then this sort of stopped within, in the middle phases of the pandemic and people were sort of expecting more from the government. And there was like a little bit less trust in the you know, third and fourth peaks, as we call it here, not necessarily waves. But uh, by the time of vaccine distribution, when we finally had vaccines and Iran only managed to sort of get access to vaccines after it's um, got its own vaccine approved internally. And that's when the US finally decided that, okay, it seems like Iran has developed and it, it doesn't make any more sense for me to target its development and sort of like sanction all these COVID related materials. So like three days later, Biden sort of said that, okay, no more OFAC, um, targeting COVID-related trade. And so by then, when, when the campaign was being rolled out, that was also largely driven through a lot of a lot of volunteer task force. But it, civil society mobilization sort of like, you know, um, coming together on its own was, I think, more effective in the beginning of the pandemic. But then it, there was sort of like, a period of you know getting a bit exhausted and sort of expecting more and more from the state and sort of like taking a back seat. Thank you. I mean, and if there's anyone in the audience who wants to ask questions, please do use the the, the Q and A function. Um, we've been talking now about partly at least the future. We've been talking about what are the prerequisites, if you will, and what are the conditions that they labor under. Um, but let me then, as we kind of wind down, let's look, you know, horizontally. To what extent are these countries cooperating? To what extent are extent are they sharing lessons learned? Are they sharing vaccines or or distribution campaign methods or anything like that? I mean, I know, for instance, in the Gulf, a number of the GCC countries all develop their own apps, for instance, so you know, kind of, if I understand correctly, partly parallel, but similar. Um, but there are no region-wide yet uh, codes of conduct on how to report the progress of the pandemic, correct? Uh, are these things that you see, I mean, that they're needed is one thing, but are you seeing anything that, that indicates that this understanding is traveling up the policy ladder, as it were, uh, and therefore might be acted upon? Intisar again, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I addressed this point earlier when I talked about just how poorly integrated and, and um, North Africa is. So there really wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of coordination between countries really on any level. The only, um, the only exception I can recall to that, and it, it, it's not really coordination per se, is when Tunisia was going through the worst of the pandemic over the summer. I think Morocco volunteered to send some support as did um, Gulf countries and as did other countries in the region that were able to provide um, some medical assistance, some field hospitals, that kind of thing. There wasn't really, um, beyond that, there was, there was no cooperation regionally. And this is, again, this is a big issue of debate about just the all that could be gained from greater regional integration and, and collaboration, but there are some very serious political challenges that stand in the way of that um, in North Africa. 
Um, I, I don't know. Do you, if you want me to throw out there a couple of other things that are kind of relevant to um, mm -hmm. pandemic and crisis management, I think for North Africa, one of the things that emerged, and this is this kind of takes us a little bit uh, further from the question of uh, regional collaboration, is the role of the military. Uh, and I was reminded of this as Vera was talking about the uh, the siege voluntary group. The role of the military, I think, was was notable in in um, pandemic crisis um, in Morocco, in Tunisia, in in, in Algeria, and Morocco, when the countries first started to figure out a way to kind of set up for the um, for the onslaught of infections and so forth, there really was a heavy reliance on the military, which is one of the few exceptions to, to the question of trust. The military remains one of the most trusted institutions in, in, in at least in North Africa, and I think in a lot of other parts of, of, uh, of, uh, of the Middle East. So there was trust that the military can somehow manage resources better, that they can manage uh, manage the situation better. So we saw kind of uh, a little bit more reliance on the military in that in that sense. So partly answered your question, threw in another element there. Let's see where the discussion takes us, but that's my answer. <laughs> Thank you. Hanan? Can you hear me? Um, yeah, I, I can. Um, I mean, on, on that, to answer the question about regional collaboration first, I am not aware of, of, you know, sort of extensive regional collaboration. I mean, certainly there is there is aid giving, uh, uh, you know, and aid flowing from the, the better resourced countries to the less resourced countries. But I think, at least from what I have, have observed, mostly it's been countries looking to WHO to sort of global guidance as opposed to to regional guidance i don't know how this will play out in the future i think you know as again you know when we emerge from this uh uh pandemic i think you know there will definitely be more conversations about about regional uh collaboration and i think there should be um the question of of the military um again i just i just want to speak about a context that i'm familiar with so so a few years back, there was a um, survey in, in Qatar, and there have been more than one. And indeed, the the military and the police are very highly trusted and, and highly respected and are seen as being efficient and so on. And they have been very important in the pandemic response. I mean, not, not necessarily the military, but for example, the Ministry of Interior. So the app that you were referring to, um, you know, that, that is used for contact tracing and, and, and so on. Um, the, the, the Ministry of Interior has been and uh, uh, very important in, in, in those issues and issues related to, you know, quarantine and isolation and, and so on. So, and they are perceived as being very efficient and, 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 and being able to manage their role uh, quite well. So that's, that's interesting. I am not familiar with, you know, what happens in, in other contexts, but I just speak from the experience here. Thank you. And I mean, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, there has been these offers of, of aid, offers of everything from medical masks to, to vaccine, uh, at least some. Um, and this is, of course, something that is it's also part of a political context. This is not just a kind of a medical epidemiological uh, issue. And this is something that is usually referred to as medical diplomacy. There's been talk about, for instance, these connections between 
the, the some GCC countries in Iran, for instance, on this issue, that they've been trying to extend their hand uh, in an otherwise rather tense political situation uh, as a way of, of showing that there is still some some avenues where cooperation or help is possible. Um, but Vera, uh, Iran, because it is to some degree uh, more isolated one way or another uh, than, than many of the other countries that we've been discussing, uh, how is this viewed in Iran? Is cooperation in the region on these issues considered science fiction, or is this something that that is kind of a, a viable policy option that might be explored? So it's interesting. Yes, I mean, it's um, a fact that Iran is very isolated in the region and in the world, more isolated than a lot of other countries, not completely isolated. But I would say that um, the Iranian states and governments, one after another, have always emphasized the, you know, the need and their priority in terms of regional cooperation. Perhaps this government is more so inclined than previously because our foreign minister now um, is fluent in Arabic and is, um, you know, well-aversed with um, the regional context and is putting a lot of emphasis on regional cooperation. So I think that it's, um, I think Iran has always, um, you know, had a, 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 its outlook is to sort of have more unity within the region and it wants to have more cooperation. Of course, it doesn't really like, um, I don't think that Iran has been in a situation to really need sometimes the kind of, you know, support that has been offered or it hasn't been at the time that has, that um, that would have been needed in Iran. But in terms of, you know, creating a more cooperative um, trade and, and also have, you know, an outlook on health diplomacy, I think that is something that would um, really align with the current foreign ministries. Um, agenda. And I also uh, want to emphasize that when we think about, you know, our health systems and the fact that most of the countries in our region rely more on, um, you know, um, foreign support and spe specifically Western um, trade um, in terms of pharmaceutical, I don't necessarily think that this is the best model. And unfortunately, we sort of all and, and a lot of the people in our in our region, as um, as uh, Intisar mentioned, um, you know, trust the Western versions of a drug or a vaccine more. And this was certainly seen in a, in a certain social and political class in Iran as well. But I think that we sort of need to, um, you know, in any way possible, create more awareness of the fact that, you know, vaccine production is, uh, has been shown to, you know, be only something that, you know, very advanced economies can achieve, but that is certainly not the case. I mean, we've had so many infectious diseases, we've had vaccine productions in our countries for such a long time, and it just really makes sense to have sort of like a regional framework for quality assurance and, and regional trade on health-related items, because it would be better for all of our economies. Um, and I think that unfortunately, most of the countries to the south of the Persian Gulf, especially, have have their eyes towards, you know, buying from the West because it doesn't m affect them maybe much. But I think for the rest of the region in like most of the other MENA countries where, where there is economic pressure, I think it really makes sense to have more cooperation um, in, that, in that direction. Okay, thank you. Intisar, did you want to chip in? 
Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, as we're talking about um, vaccine diplomacy and cooperation, to talk a little bit about the role of of external um, actors. And I I sort of, I'm kind of processing this a little bit on the go. So, um, you know, we, when you look at um, how some of these countries have tried to cope in terms of, of uh, vaccine procurement, I think there was the feeling that China was maybe a lot more of a reliable partner than some of these traditional partners like the US and Europe for a lot of these countries. Even, and, and I will exclude Morocco here because Morocco was able to procure um, uh, some of the you know, the AstraZeneca early on, but but for a lot, for the second, maybe the second half and third half of their vaccination campaigns, they've had to rely on on the Chinese vaccine. But more more to the point that you were making, Vera, we are seeing or we saw early on in this conversation about vaccines, effort to actually open vaccine production plans in Morocco, which was not a conversation that was um, had with you know with Europe or with the U.S. in terms of vaccine production around, so I think that kind of changes a little bit some of the dynamic when you are talking about um, you know partnerships and and the idea of partnerships, and I I see this as sort of something that's kind of happening a lot when I look at how Morocco is managing their uh, foreign foreign uh, policy and foreign partnership is that there is maybe the sense that you could have kind of a more equitable relationship with uh, potentially non-traditional partners, right? And and it's kind of interesting to see how that plays into um, the pandemic and and um, sort of the development of interests and, sh- and kind of shared interests and, and um, uh, opportunities moving forward. So that's just something that I wanted to, to kind of throw out there. Um, I was looking at some of the data that's been collected on sort of um, public sentiment towards some of these new actors, particularly China and Russia. And it's it's definitely changing. I mean, in many ways, these are not um, necessarily new actors, but in a lot of ways, they are new actors, right? So China is developing a lot more of an economic footprint um, in North Africa, or, or they were um, early on with the Road and Belt Initiative and, and so forth. So, but it's interesting to see that, you know, public sentiment is a little bit slower to catch up. You know, you have the, when we, when we in the region think of traditional actors, we tend to think more of Europe and and the US and the idea of China and Russia is something that's sort of still a little bit more kind of emerging. Thank you. Yes, I mean, it is, I mean, perhaps then at least that is a, 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 a sentence of optimism in that this pressure and this sense of being far too reliant on one source, as it were, uh, a source that is also, if you will, subject to the laws of capitalism in a way that doesn't necessarily always work optimally when it comes to dealing with the medical uh, emergency. Uh, is something that could breed new ways of, of working together and building that capacity within the region. Um, hopefully that is something that we will see in the future. Unless someone has some final remarks you would like to share, uh, I'd like to thank you all for participating in this conversation. I've learned a lot. Uh, this will be rec- is recorded, so it will be on our website for those who want to, to look at it later on. Uh, thank you very much. 
for this conversation. And this is just the beginning as far as we are concerned when it comes to public health in the region. So we will, we will come back to you for further installments of, of uh, dealing with these issues. Thank you very much.